Hello and welcome to our From the Foil podcast, exploring the peoples, places and the past of the north coast of Ireland. If you're joining us on this journey through some of the stories and histories associated with the area, you're probably now either on Benoan Beach or imagining the landscape which lies to the right and the left of this superb seven-mile stretch of soft sand which runs from McGilligan to Downhill. The name Benoan actually comes from the Irish Benoan, which means the foot of the river. The river in question in this case seems to be a stream which flows into the sea at Downhill Strand, and we have records of the name going back to at least 1610. The same originally Irish name appears elsewhere, as Bunoan in County Tyrone and as Bunahon in County Fermanagh. And the village of Burnfoot, just across on the other side of the foil in the Nishon County Donegal, has the same meaning. The element burn is much more common in Scotland, where it can refer to a river or stream, but it was introduced to Ireland in the 17th century with Scottish settlers. Just up to your right, you should be able to see Musenden Temple, built in 1785 by Frederick Augustus Hervey, 4th Earl of Bristol and the Bishop of Derry. Hervey is often thought of as something of an eccentric. He's reported to have made his clergy run a leapfrog race on the beach, and he built the temple as a summer library and named it in honour of his cousin. Downhill Beach, further along, takes its name from the townland where the entrance to the beach is located. The modern name is clearly of English origin, perhaps a reference to the long, steep hill which leads down to the coast along the Musenden Road. The townland was originally named Dunbow, the Fort of the Cows. As the beach extends to your left, you enter the townland of Benarees. This is just an anglicised version of the Irish Benrivach or Grey Cliff, a name which alludes to the sheer cliffs here which provide the backdrop to Downhill Strand. There's a rock on the shore in the townland of Benarees which is known as Bakken the Bow, the Tether of the Cow. According to local legend, this is where a cow known as Anglas Gauvlin was tethered after it was stolen from its owner, Gauvnu, a mythical smith of the Tuatha de Danann. Benoan Beach is one of Ireland's longest, stretching all the way to Loch Foyle at McGilligan Point, or Ard McGilligan in Irish. Home to Her Majesty's Prison, McGilligan, a medium security prison, this is also the departure point of the Foyle Ferry which runs between McGilligan Point and the town of Greencastle on the far side of the Foyle in County Donegal. McGilligan was also chosen as the baseline for triangulation of the Ordnance Survey mapping of Ireland in the 19th century. And if you make the trip up to McGilligan Point later, you'll see a Martello Tower, which is matched by an identical one at Greencastle on the other side. The towers were built by the British in 1812 during the Napoleonic Wars to guard the entrance of the city against any possible invasion. And speaking of invasion, it was actually the north coast of Ireland which saw the very first tax of the Vikings in the late 700s and early 800s. Donegal, of course, comes from Dunnangaul, which means the stronghold of the foreigners. In the annals, the year-by-year accounts of events in Ireland and further afield, the Vikings are often referred to as foreigners, sometimes further distinguished as either dark-haired foreigners or fair-haired foreigners. 
They're also known simply as the heathens. The first reference to the heathens attacking Ireland comes in an entry in the annals for the year 795, which mentions the burning of Rathlin Island. The attacks on the coast of Ireland continued for several decades and it's clear that the Norse burnt monasteries, that they raided them for their treasures and goods and that they also took slaves. Their attacks continued in a rather more sporadic way until the year 821 when they began to intensify. Interestingly, Icelandic sagas also mention Ireland and adventures take place there. The Icelandic Book of Settlements determines the geographical distance between Iceland and Ireland to be five days by sea. This is reckoned from a place named Yulderup in Ireland, which has been identified as Slyne Head in Connemara. Probably the most famous saga depicting the Irish and Ireland is Neil's saga, the story of Burnt Neil, which includes references to the early 11th century king Brian Baru and the Battle of Clontarf. Medieval Ireland, of course, produced its own extraordinary tales. One concerns the townland of Shrove or Shrove in Donegal. Located far to your left, at the tip of the Inishowen Peninsula, on the other side of the foil, Shrove is not a place normally associated with the Ulster hero Cahullan. But the medieval legend of how Shrove got its name brings together this headland, Cahullan and an enormous flock of birds. In existence, certainly by the 11th or 12th century, the short narrative tells how our hero pursued a flock of 350 enormous blackbirds, starting out from Dundalk. The beak of each of those birds was said to be the length of seven hands. And in every territory that he crossed, Cahullin killed one of the birds until at last only a single raven was left. Finally, he killed it too cut off its head, washed his hands in the blood and left the head on a rock. In so doing, he said, this is Sruv Bran, a typically ambiguous statement which can mean either this is the beak of the raven or this is the headland of the raven. And so, according to medieval place name traditions at any rate, this part of Inishon is known as Sruv, from the word Sruv, referring to a nose, a snout, a beak, or headland. You may have heard of Struve being pronounced with a T as Struve, but this consonant isn't written in the Irish form of the name, though it's often pronounced in northern dialects. And Strove or Struve or Struve is also known as Donagree Point, which would translate roughly as the Fort of the Horse. A distinctive black and white striped lighthouse at Sruve was originally used to guide vessels into Loch Foyle and to lead them clear of the Tun's bank. While we're talking about Inishowen, we might add that this is the largest peninsula on the island of Ireland and it contains the most northerly point in the country. The name Inishowen derives from the Irish meaning Owen's Island or Owen's Peninsula. The Owen in question is reputedly a son of the famous Neil Nuigeloch or Neil of the Nine Hostages. Neil was claimed as the ancestor of the Unail dynasties that dominated the northern half of Ireland from the 6th to the 10th centuries. As the influence of the Unail spread, their territory became known as Tir Owen or Tyrone, Owen's land. <laughs> 
the Inishowen Peninsula and the coastal townlands of Derry and Antrim have produced some extraordinary archaeological finds, such as coins, arm rings, the Dalriada brooch and the university brooch. The remains of a boat unearthed in Ballywillan Bog near Portrush in 1813 may be of Viking origin and suggest the North settlement in this area. The spot where the ship is found is close to the War Hollow, the fourth hole on Portrush Royal Valley Golf Course, where King Magnus Barefoot of Norway is reputed to have been killed. Certainly the Norsemen made their presence felt in the foil. The annals of Ulster tell us that in the year 921, a fleet of 32 ships came into the loch. According to this account, Fergal, son of Donal, killed the crew of one of the ships, wrecked the vessel and took its booty. This is one of many reports of Irish victories over the Norse. In the annals of Ulster, Loch Foyle is referred to as Loch Fivel. The early literature of Ireland consistently claims that Fable is the name of a man who reportedly drowned when the water which now fills the loch suddenly erupted from underground and covered what had previously been an extensive fertile plain called Mulch Fable or the Plain of Foil. One of the few glimpses that we have into how people of the Middle Ages imagined the landscape of this area before it was flooded comes from a text which might have been composed as early as the 7th or 8th century. In it, St Clumba, or Columcilia, talks to a young man who tells him that the loch had once been yellow, flowery, green and hilly, and that he himself had grazed on it when he was a stag, run on it when he was a wolf, and swum in it when he was a salmon and a seal. This idea of water bursting from underground is a common way of explaining how lochs, estuaries and rivers were formed. The traditions which have come down to us really bear witness to how the people of Ireland in previous centuries attempted to make sense of the world around them. And foil is just one of nine bodies of water, said to have erupted simultaneously shortly after the gales arrived in Ireland. Whatever about its landscape, the area around Loch Foyle must have been a vibrant centre of learning in the centuries after the coming of Christianity. And though Feville himself is a shadowy figure in the early tales of Ireland, his son Bran is much better known. It's sometimes supposed that Sruth Bran, if not named from the raven, is called after Bran, son of Feville. But nothing of that appears in the early material. Instead, Bran was made famous by an account of a voyage he undertook out into the open sea. Bran's voyage consists of a curious catalogue of adventures. He and his companions come upon the island of Joy, whose occupants seem capable only of laughing and staring, and then they arrive at the island of Woman. Given that one of Bran's companions had landed on the island of Joy and immediately taken to laughing and staring like the people already there, Bran at first doesn't dare to set foot on the island of Woman. Eventually, though, the leader of the woman on the island throws a ball of thread to Bran, and when he catches it, it sticks to his hand, and using the thread, she's able to pull him and his boat into shore. Bran's voyage is quite well known today and the small rowing boat in which he set out 
is often mentally mapped onto the delicate model boat which formed part of the Broiter Horde, found in a field outside Ballykelly in 1896. The stunning gold objects in this find included necklaces, twisted torques and an ornamental bowl, all dating to around 100 BC. But it's the boat which has left a lasting impression. Perfectly crafted with benches, rows of oars, a steering paddle and interestingly a sail, the beautiful boat could be a replica of an actual vessel of up to 15 metres in length and it seems to provide the earliest evidence for the use of sail in Irish waters. It may be tempting to assume that the name of this fine spot refers to the brightness of the sheen of the treasures, but the townland of Broiter derives from the Irish name Bruach Eichter, meaning lower boundary, and indeed the townland originally marked the land boundary with Loch Foyle. Ballykelly, on the other hand, is from the Irish Bala Ucheli, O'Kelly's townland. O'Kelly or Kelly being the second most numerous surname in Ireland and the third most numerous in modern day County Derry. The tale of Imrav Bran or the Voyage of Bran was probably composed around the year 700 AD. In the following centuries, boats were to prove central to a long period of contact and conflict around the foil. The Vikings attacked, settled and organised expeditions from the region of the foil. By the time a new Viking chieftain, Oliver the White, arrived in Ireland in the year 853, the Vikings had most probably several settlements in the area of the foil. Indeed, for the year 866, the foreigners of the province gathered together at Loch Foyle in order to attack King Aeth Finlaith, who was concerned about their presence on the borders of his own kingdom. If the Irish annals are to be believed, Aeth's rout of the heathens of Loch Foyle was conclusive. In a translation of the original Irish text, we're told their heads were collected to one place in the presence of the king and twelve score heads were reckoned before him, which was the number slain by him in that battle, besides the number of them who were wounded and carried off by him in the agonies of death and who died of their wounds some time afterwards. Despite this apparent defeat, the Vikings of Loch Foyle are mentioned in a few other times in the annals. One notable occurrence concerns the year 893, when Armagh is said to have been plundered by the foreigners of Loch Foyle. Armagh, of course, as the wealthy ecclesiastical capital of Ireland, was an obvious target, and in this period it was raided also from Norse bases in Strangford Loch and Dublin. More than a century after the first attacks, the Vikings were still in the foil, though. In 921 they plundered in Ishoan, and in 941 they were active again, though by this stage they seemed to have formed alliances with the native Irish. Out of sight, if you're situated around Benoan, but down at the base of Loch Foyle is the city of Derry. The name Derry, as most of you will know, comes from the Irish word Dara, which signified an oak grove, though Dara can be a grove or thicket of any type of tree. As you can imagine, there was more than one wood in early Ireland and there was also more than one place named Dura. To distinguish one location from another, an adjective was often attached and this gave rise to names like Dura Moor, 
which is literally the big oak wood and which lies behind place names like Derry Moor. The Derry in which we are mainly interested here was sometimes called Dora Columchilia, Columchilia's Derry or St Columba's Derry. In 1613 Derry was renamed London Derry by the Planter London Companies on account of their association with the City of London while the former county of Coleraine was also renamed Londonderry. Both names reappear in New Hampshire in the United States, where towns named Derry and Londonderry, both founded by immigrants, sit side by side. Around the 9th century, Derry was mentioned in an Irish text best known in English as the Triads of Ireland. As the title suggests, this text is a simple catalogue of peoples, places and things grouped in threes. In it, Derry is described as one of the three best-loved places in Ireland. Also named in this list is Durrow, County Offaly, in the centre of Ireland, and it can be no coincidence that both Derry and Durrow were sites of monasteries founded by Columkiller. Columba is associated also with the Monastery of Iona, the island off Mull in the west of Scotland, to which he emigrated in the middle of the 6th century. And in the centuries after his death, on Sunday the 9th of June, from the year 597, he acquired a reputation as a poet, especially as a writer of exile poetry and of poems which praised the parts of Ireland to which he had strong connections. One of the best known of these poems is just four lines long and begins, Is Ara Charam Dara, This Is Why I Love Derry. The remainder of the verse describes the city in terms of its tranquillity and purity and imagined it as full of angels from one end to the other. Essentially, the poem typifies the kind of wistful reflections that a learned churchman in exile might express. But the language seems more in keeping with what we expect of Irish of the 12th century rather than of the 6th when Colm Keeloo was alive. High up above the foil on the east side, a statue of Manon and Maglure surveys all around him from his wind-swept hilltop. Benevena Mountain marks the western extent of the Antrim Plateau and was formed 60 million years ago by molten lava. The name Benevena comes from the Irish meaning Fauvna's Peak. The element Ben in place names is generally not applied to the highest mountains, which are named Slieve but to middle-sized mountains. From his vantage point, Mananan has a fantastic view of Benone as well as of the lip of McGilligan and of Inishowen across the water. The statue itself is of course a replacement, the original having been removed and damaged in 2015. Transparently, Makalir means son of the sea and several texts tell us that Mananan comes from Manu, the name of the Isle of Man. So Manon and MacLear wasn't just associated with the foil area, and did another name for him, Orobson, is connected with Loch Corrup in County Galway. That he should be linked to various places is not entirely surprising, as medieval Irish scholars deemed him to be, in Latin, Deum Maris, the god of the sea. But the earliest reference that we have do tie him to a small body of literature focused on the foil. He even makes a guest appearance in the story of Bran's voyage out into the open ocean. He is in fact the first being whom Bran encounters and his function seems to be to teach Bran about perspective. 
In a memorable evocative poem, he explains that what is a clear sea for Bran in his boat is a beautiful flowery plain for Mananon, who rides across it in his chariot. And what Bran deems to be speckled salmon are calves and lambs in Mananon's world. In light of the existence of this short poem, it seems perfectly fitting that the Gortmore statue portrays Mananon standing with arms aloft in the brow of a boat on dry land. The statue of Mananon MacLear is probably behind you to the left. Further along to your right lies the mouth of the River Ban. The Ban has long occupied a place of importance in the geographic history of Ireland. In the triads that we mentioned already, the three rivers of Ireland, in other words the three most important rivers, are specified as the Shannon, the Boyne and the Ban. In medieval Irish stories the river is sometimes linked with Loch Ney, out of which it emerges. It's said that the River Ban was a small river until the water burst through the ground and flooded the area where the loch is now. Indeed, the ban is supposed to have once been such an insignificant stream that women and boys would jump across it. This tradition may have been expired by the fact that the name of the river resembles the old Irish word bana, which meant a drop. In truth, we don't know for sure how the name of the river came about or what it might have originally signified. Over the years, various suggestions have been put forward, including claims that the name can be interpreted as White River or Goddess, but none of these suggestions seems likely to be correct. In the literature of the 11th and 12th centuries, the name of a section of the ban is associated with a woman who lost her life in the river. The woman in question here is named Tuag, daughter of Conal Columrach. And as the story goes, she was the first woman that the sea god Mananon MacLear ever loved. Such was his determination to have her, that Mananon sent a man from the other world called Farfi to get her. And Farfi shapeshifted into the form of a young woman, made his way into Tuag's company and put her to sleep with a spell. He then carried the sleeping woman all the way from Tara to the north coast, and when he got to the mouth of the ban, he laid her down while he went to look for a boat. While he was gone, the woman drowned in the high tide. And because of that, the mouth of the ban is said to have been called Tuag Inver, or Tuag of the River Mouth. In truth, Tuag Inver means the curve of the river mouth. And if you look at the map of the area, just before the ban opens into the sea outside Castle Rock, you can see the distinct bend in the course of the river which marks the place where Farfi set down the ill-fated sleep-enchanted woman. Of course, the ban has long been associated with real-world drownings as well, both deliberate and accidental. The annals of the Four Masters record that in the year 1472, Rory McQuillan was attacked and drowned in it as a result of a feud which involved also the son of the famous Hugh Boy II, or Aeth Boya O'Neill. And just three years later, Aeth, the son of Nechtan O'Donnell, also lost his life crossing this estuary in a small boat. The annals tell us nothing about Aeth's purpose in crossing the ban, but even in the 15th century, the river was something of a dividing line between communities. In 1419, when Donal O'Neill was expelled from Tyrone, some sources specify that he was driven east of the Ban in Mescal, 
in other words, amongst foreigners. In St. Patrick's time, the people of the east of the Ban are distinguished in another way. The life of St. Patrick, parts of which probably were written in the late 9th century, say that traditionally the local community only fished at night along the eastern bank of the Ban, and that it was St. Patrick who suggested to them that they fish during the day. The text concludes that people will be fishing by day on the eastern bank of the Ban until the end of the world. And so it is to the eastern side of the Ban that we go. Keeping your view to the right in the distance, you should be able to see Port Stewart a little further around the coast. Port Stewart is named from a Lieutenant Stewart of nearby Ballylise, who obtained a lease of land in 1734. The modern town was established in 1794 by John Cromery, a local wine merchant. His father purchased the land from the Stuarts, whose ancestors hailed from Butte in Scotland. Moving on, we see from a distance Rathlin Island. In Irish, the island is named Rechlin or Rechran. Indeed, a number of Irish islands are similarly named, but the derivation of the name is obscure. The most plausible suggestion to date is that it contains a Celtic root, represented by a Welsh word which means to rub or scrape. So the name of Rathlin may mean something like indented island or rugged island. Rathlin was annexed to the parish of Billy in medieval times, but it was reconstituted a parish in its own right in 1722. There was an early church on Rathlin, the location of which is uncertain, but it's mentioned as early as the year 630 AD. Less than two centuries later, of course, the Norse had arrived and the annals were announcing the burning of Rathlin Island. We very much hope that you've enjoyed this short podcast. Benoan Beach and other areas of the north coast of Ireland have come to international attention recently when they featured in the Game of Thrones series. This was the backdrop for Dragonstone, where the seven idols of Westeros were burned and the Red Priestess dramatically proclaimed that the night is dark and full of terrors. In the same series, Benevena featured as the Dothraki grasslands, where Daenerys Targaryen was rescued by her fire-breathing dragon. Our aim here has been to suggest that the medieval history of this part of the world is as startling and dramatic as any fictional TV series. And that more than a thousand years ago, stories were told about these places which could rival any episode of Game of Thrones, with their cast of distinctive, intriguing characters, their rich and dark storylines. Thank you for listening.